due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12 or those of a sensitive nature should turn off now. Hi, and welcome to the Murder Tales Podcast, where we look into the minds and crimes of murderers and serial killers. My name is Chris Britton, and for each episode, I'm joined by the criminal historian and creator of the Murder Tales series of books, H.N. Lloyd. Or as we know it, Lloydie. How are you, Lloydie? I'm fine, thank you very much. Good. Right, so Lloydie, this, this episode has been influenced by recent events. We can't obviously talk about the case which has got Australia in depth because it's an ongoing case. But obviously, it has flagged up some similarities on cases that you've looked into in the past. Yeah, I'm sure the listeners have been watching with great interest the uh, case of Erin Patterson and uh, Beef Wellington over in Australia. And it made me think of one of my favourite cases, which is one that goes which goes all the way back to the 1920s. So I take it this is a poisonous case. It is. It's a case which, it's got a couple of names. It's known as the Croydon Poison, but I prefer the the name the Birdhurst Rise Poisoning. That's because it took place in a house, in, in a street called Birdhurst Rise in Croydon in London. Okay. Well, in that case, Luddy, take it away. So our case begins in April 1928, when a gentleman by the name of Major Edmund Crichton Duff. That's a great name. Can't you tell we're in the 20s? Yeah, there's some really wonderful names in in this case, and that's part of the reason why I love it. So it's a Major Duff. He goes off on this fishing holiday. But before he goes off, he calls into his doctor, Dr. Elwell. And he says that he's had a bit of a jippy tummy. He's been feeling a bit sick. He's had a bit of the runs. So he's given uh, some quinine tablets and he goes off on his holidays. And whilst he's there on this fishing trip, he's seen sipping out of a hip flask. He gets home and on the way home, he's complaining that he's feeling under the weather again. And he, he thinks that he might be having a recurrence of the malaria that he caught whilst off in the colonies because he was a major in the British Army. And obviously that's why he was prescribed quinine, because that is a malaria drug. Exactly. So he gets home and they give him some dinner and he doesn't really have a chance to eat it because he's feeling too ill. He sips some beer, then he takes it to his bed and he promptly dies. And Major Edmund Crichton Duff is then buried. And it's said that he died because of the malaria that, that he'd had. Now, Major Edmund Crichton Duff was married and his wife was called Grace and the whole family rally around Grace to make sure that she's okay. So Grace comes from quite a well-to-do family and the, the head of the family is a lady called Violet Violet Sydney and Violet has other children she has Vera Sydney who's a bit of an old maid 
She's never married and she was a masseuse. And there was Thomas Sidney uh, and he was married and he had kids as well. And they all lived in a few streets of Birdhurst Rise where Violet lived with Vera. And there was also a maid who lived with Violet and Vera, and her name was Katie Noakes. Edmunds died. The family started, you know, rally after the death. And it's difficult. It's difficult for the family. Grace started to struggle a little bit financially. Edmund Duff hadn't been the best with money. He'd been quite a wealthy man leaving the army, but he'd made several bad investments on the stock market and he'd lost most of the family money. So Vera strikes the deal with Grace and basically says, I'll pay for your children to continue at private school. And Grace was, was very grateful for that. It's now it's nearly a year before anything else happens. In February of 1929, Vera falls ill. Now, she immediately blames this soup that she's been served at dinner. And she complains that this soup tastes bitter and gritty. Now, Violet, the, the, the matriarch of the family, didn't eat the soup. And that night, Vera falls ill. She's vomiting and she has diarrhea. She quickly recovers and she ends up spending the next few days playing golf. She also has a Citroen motor car and she has trouble starting it and it takes her a while to crank the engine. And then a little later that day, after playing a round of golf and tootling around in her car, a great aunt comes to visit them. And at the dinner, soup is served again. And once again, the soup tastes a bit bitter and a bit gritty. And the great aunt pushes the soup away and Vera can't finish it. Unbeknown to the family, Katie Noakes, the maid, helps herself to some of the soup. Now, this is something she shouldn't have really done. She was under strict instructions not to eat the family's food. She had to eat kind of servants' rations. So she sneakily gives herself some soup. She doesn't like it either. And so she puts it down for the cat. And the cat has some of the soup. And the cat doesn't like it and walks away. That night, Birdhurst Rise is struck down by sickness. Vera, Katie Noakes, and even the cat all come down with the same symptoms, vomiting and diarrhoea. The great aunt who had been to visit, she gets the same symptoms and she's ill for a week. And Vera dies. Dr. Elwell, the family doctor, who had signed Edmund Crichton Duff's death certificate, basically says that Vera had strained her heart when vomiting and died as a result of that. So he signs her death certificate and she's promptly buried. No questions asked. Then, a month later, Violet is struck down with the same symptoms. She starts vomiting 
she has diarrhea and she promptly dies. So this time, Dr. Elwell feels that with three members of the family having died almost within a year of each other, all with broadly similar symptoms, that he can't sign the death certificate. And his business partner, Dr. Binnings, agrees. And so he orders that an autopsy should be carried out. That sounds like a good time to take a break. It is indeed. And welcome back. Right, okay. So we're in the situation now that three members of the same family have died of the same symptoms. Quite rightly, their their doctors have requested an autopsy. So without exhuming the other bodies, I take it this was first performed on Violet. It was. Violet's body was autopsied and within the contents of her stomach were discovered large quantities of arsenic. So there could be only one conclusion drawn from this. Violet had been murdered. Bearing in mind, arsenic was readily available at that time. It was even in wallpaper. It was. It was in flypaper. It was in wallpaper. It was in weed killer. So obviously, foul play. So the other bodies had to be exhumed. Major Edmund Crichton Duff was exhumed, and so was Vera. With there being about a year between the two deaths, is there enough to autopsy still? Oh, yes. And this is one of the wonderful things about arsenic. Arsenic preserves corpses. So when you dig up a body and it's been quite some time and you open up the coffin, you can almost immediately tell if there's arsenic involved because the body will be will be quite well preserved. Am I right in saying that when bodies are exhumed and they have found arsenic uh, within their system, it gives off kind of like a garlicky smell? There can be a mild garlicky odour as arsenic deteriorates it is only very very mild usually it's completely undetectable arsenic it had no taste and it had no smell and that's why it was undetectable but there's a point on this that we will return to later on which is quite important we can assume from what you're saying that the weapon of choice not only obviously because it was arsenic was delivered via super well exactly so the police started to focus on the sydney family and they discovered that the most likely people were obviously now grace or thomas the two surviving children and both grace and thomas had access to arsenic what how do they have access to it Basically, arsenic was used in so many household things that that a lot of people had arsenic around the house. However, one of the important things about the arsenic they think was used was that bitter, gritty taste to the soup. Thomas had a particular type of weed killer. And in that weed killer, arsenic was mixed with caustic soda. 
there is a brilliant criminologist who, who sadly no longer with us. And his name was Richard Whittington Egan. He was a fellow Scouser. We're not Scousers. We're not Scousers. Okay, come on. He investigated this case at length. And he went above and beyond the course. And he tried arsenic. He actually took arsenic as part of his investigation. And he discovered that arsenic was odorless and it had no taste, uh, as we've already mentioned. However, if you mixed it with Corsic soda, it suddenly developed a bitter and gritty taste. So therefore, we can almost say for certain that the arsenic came from the weed killer that Thomas had. To be fair, ingesting caustic soda is dangerous as it is without adding arsenic into that mix. So whether it was a deliberate use of arsenic, caustic soda probably would have killed them anyway in quite a a nasty way. Mm. So it was quite a little nasty cocktail that they were giving the, the, the family, but it was the arsenic that finally did for them. So we need to whittle down our two remaining suspects. Mm-hmm. Well, the police investigated the family in quite minute detail, and they discovered that both Grace and Thomas stood to benefit quite substantially from the family members' deaths. Roughly £6,000 when you add together how much money they would have received from each of the dead relatives. To put that into some sort of context, that would roughly equate to nearly £300,000 today. So it is quite a substantial amount. It was. So obviously the police turned their eye on who needed the money the most and they found that both of the children let's say children they were adults but they found that both of the uh, people who stood to inherit weren't in the best financial circumstances so both of them had motive to, to have these relatives out the way so they could make the money quickly right am i right in saying that poisoning's not normally choice weapon for a male killer they do say or they did say and it is a rather misogynistic view that it was the the weapon used by a woman however there are lots of examples of men using poison to do away with people they don't want but statistically you are right it is women who are more likely to use poison why is that? Why why is it that's the preferred weapon of choice? One school of thought has it that it's an easier weapon for women to use because it doesn't involve brute force and violence. Uh, and women, obviously, historically seen as the weaker in inverted comic sex, the the the, sorry, the misogynistic view that women wouldn't have the strength to overcome their victims. And so would choose a weapon that was would waylay them in a, in a more un, underhanded way. 
there was also another misogynistic view that women chose poison simply to be cruel because they could stand back and watch their victims suffer. But as we will talk about in future episodes, men also get their kicks by doing that. So it is a completely outdated and wrong hypothesis, really. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and even though statistically, because that's how it looks, anybody can be a victim. And if somebody's going to choose to end somebody's life in any particular way, they will find the most convenient weapon to them. And I think poison, it was known uh, for a period as the inheritor powder arsenic, because if a doctor isn't on the ball and it's used as a one-off, the symptoms, as we've seen, can be put down somebody having uh, the collie wobbles. Uh, They've just got a bit of an upset stomach. The, The thing is, whoever committed the murder in this case brought attention to themselves by murdering too many people. And it's a mistake that poisoners throughout time made. They get greedy and they keep using the same method. It brings attention to their crimes and they get caught. So I take it our chief suspect here is Grace. Yes. Now, I'll tell you why. As the police were investigating, they discovered that Grace was having an affair with none other than Dr. Elwell, the man who had signed the death certificates for the first two victims. Okay. So was he in on this then? Well, we don't know. But Vera had discovered the affair and had told Grace that if she didn't put a stop to it, she would stop paying for the children's education. And not long having this heated conversation with Grace, Vera was poisoned. Was there a history of Grace acting in any particular way when she was younger? Like any any new... You, usual alarm bells which would suggest that no grace um came from a very well-to-do family she married extremely young edmund Crichton duff was 46 when he married grace grace was only 17 she was introduced by her father to edmund Crichton duff who basically saw her as a prize to be won. He seduced her and they quickly got married. But for most of their marriage, Edmund Crichton Duff lived in the colonies and Grace stayed in England. So they were hardly together when they were married. Then he came back to England and got himself a job in the city. As I said, he wasn't very good at it and he lost most of the family's money. There was an interesting incident, however. When they first lost their money, realising they were struggling to afford the house, they took in a lodger who was more similar to age to Edmund Crichton Duff than Grace. And Edmund Crichton Duff and this lodger became very close, and she was also quite wealthy. She fell ill with vomiting and diarrhoea, and she died leaving her money 
to the Crichton Duffs. But many have concluded that this was Grace trying poison for the first time, seeing that it was effective, seeing that it worked, seeing that she got away with it. And then years later, when she fell out of love with Edmund Crichton Duff, fell in love with Dr. Elwell, decided to let's just use this to clean house and get rid of obstacles that are stopping me from having what I truly want in life, which is Dr. Elwell and money. You've got to have the opportunity, though, as well. So with them having servants in the house, when would she have access to the to the soup? Anytime she wanted. And this is what everybody said. It, the Sydneys were a very close family and they would they would pop into each other's houses all the time. So you could walk in to Birdhurst Rise, find Thomas or Grace there, find them in the kitchen, find them in the parlour, and you wouldn't bat an eyelid and think twice or think they were up to anything suspicious. So just going off the assumption, obviously the first victim was the major. So would you think she was trying to clear house initially with him? I do. And I think that's why he fell ill before he went away on his fishing trip. When that failed and all he got was a bit of mild irritation, I think she upped the dose, put it in his hip flask, which made him ill throughout the course of the holiday. And when she realised that he hadn't died whilst on holiday, she gave him an even bigger dose in the beer he drank at his final supper. And that's what tore him off. So what I'm getting at, what if the other victims became suspicious? I don't think the other victims were suspicious. I simply think she wanted them out of the way and she wanted their money. What gets me is obviously she's quite easily killed three members of her own family at different times. So psychologically, what enables somebody to do that? I think you have to be somebody with a certain cold mindset especially with poison because you have to be willing to watch somebody suffer whether you take enjoyment from watching that suffering is a different matter i think also somebody like grace somebody who has been effectively given away like property when she was 17 to be married poison gives them power they literally have the power over life and death over somebody So for the first time in her life, Grace had power over situations she had been powerless over. She could get rid of the husband she no longer loved. She could get rid of the relative who was dangling the carrot of financial security over her, that being a sister Vera. Why shouldn't she just have that money and decide whether she pays for her children to go to private school herself? So I think it's about power and control and trying to seize power in a life where you've been quite powerless. I think the there's also possibly a kick there with, over discretion as well, because it is so discreet. It's it's a subtle one that you just drop into somebody's food you know. So there's a level of power there, mm. um, to to add, which adds a, a different dimension. Mm. And as an added bonus, if you don't like the person, you get to watch them suffer. That's true. We've obviously the, we've had three bodies which have been exhumed, and 
it's been identified that all three were poisoned. What happens next? So now you have a rather ridiculous situation where they have to reopen the inquests into the three deaths. And because of the laws at the time, even though it was almost certain that each death was connected and carried out by the same person, there had to be three separate interests. There had to be three separate inquests carried out at the same time in the same building in separate rooms with Thomas and Grace running between the two as uh, running between the three separate rooms to give their evidence. Each of the inquests came to the same conclusion, and that was that Edmund, Vera and Violet had been willfully murdered by person or persons unknown. Now, the reason why they said personal persons unknown, it's because at the time they couldn't decide who had killed them. Was it Thomas? Was it Grace? Was it a third party? The police had their ideas, but there was a sticking point. The police had been to the director of public prosecutions and had shown them their evidence and basically said to them, we think Grace is the killer. She had the means, she had access to the arsenic. She had the motive in that she wanted her family out the way to have her own financial security and to have a relationship with Dr. Elwell. And the Department of Public Prosecutions basically said, your case is too circumstantial. We don't think it's enough to swear a jury. In fact, if you had a clever enough barrister, they would be able to say, well, why isn't Thomas? equally a good sub suspect and get her off and because of that the police were never able to charge grace with murder and never able to bring her to trial so on that basis then if they're alluding that thomas could have been a suspect what is his murder triangle his only real motive would be financial but it wasn't his financial circumstances weren't as dire as grace's and you didn't have that other added elements of Grace being in a deeply unhappy relationship with a husband she no longer loved. He had no real reason to kill Edmund Crichton Duff because he wasn't going to inherit any of his money. And if we look at the other kind of circumstantial evidence of the lodger who died many years before, he had no real reason to kill her. The only pe people he really would have had a motive to kill were Violet and Vera, who he inherited off. So the third victim was unnecessary for him to kill. Grace was the only one with a solid motive to want all three dead. But the police were never ever able to prosecute her. Never able to prosecute her. But going back to Richard Whittington Egan, he had the brass balls to go to Grace's house to knock on her front door and when she opened the door say to her i think you're the murderer i think the evidence i've collected is strong enough to prosecute you i'm going to say as much in a book i'm writing but because i don't want to publicly embarrass you i'm not going to publish it till after you die grace didn't say anything she just closed the door in his face I wonder why. 
<laughs> but all credit to Richard Whittington Egan for doing that. In his book, he does make a very strong case for Grace being the killer. And I think that has coloured every single researcher and crime historian who has come to the case since that book was published in 1973. And I think the common consensus now is that Grace was the killer. It sounds the most likely, from what you've told me, that it does sound the most likely. Do you think that the problem we've got is technically it still is an unsolved crime? So obviously it's a case of trying to pin your colours to the mass in effect. Race does sound the most plausible. I personally think the fact that the doctor was so willing to sign the uh, the first death certificates off quite quickly might have had some sort of hand in it. We're only saying that he then brought it up with his colleague. Mm. Whatever it was a case of, his colleague brought it up to save his professional dignity. Mm. Uh, and I'm kind of thinking back to likes of, of friendship on that basis because his colleague did bring bring up those, those questions over his patients. So I'm wondering whether that was actually the case. Well, we'll, we'll never really know now. What we do know is that... Uh... The, the relationship that they had didn't continue. And I think they realised quite quickly that if they did continue with that relationship, it would only cause more questions that they didn't want. The case did actually cause, sorry, the, the events did actually cause a rift between the siblings. Thomas emigrated to America, where he became an antiques dealer, and he never spoke to Grace ever again. Grace sold Birdhurst Rise and she moved to the south coast where she opened up a guest house. Really? Yes, sir. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't want to go full board at that guest house, would you? So I mentioned before that Richard Whittington Egan wrote the, almost a seminal book on the case. He interviewed virtually all of the key players, including Thomas Sidney. He was open and honest with Richard Whittington Egan and he gave a full account of everything that happened over that period. It was only Grace who refused to talk to him, which again, some have said that shows Grace's guilt. Others have said, well, maybe it shows that Thomas was trying too hard to please there and that he, you know, he was trying to look like he had nothing to hide. But he was... Thomas basically said that that he could never trust Grace after what happened, and he believed that she was the murderer. I wouldn't want to be related to her if she's killed off three members of your own family. And possibly a lodger. Um, and what happened next to Grace? Grace faded into obscurity. Her son, one of her sons died in the Second World War. Her other child um, carried on. Uh, she died in 1973 at the age of 86. Was there ever, as we sometimes hear, some sort of deathbed confession? In, in this case, no. Grace never spoke about the case. And when given the opportunity to by people like Richard, she refused. We're going to take, treat this as one of these unsolved cases, although we have a very likely suspect. I think it does have to go down as an unsolved case because there wasn't a prosecution, there wasn't a conviction. But I think anyone who has read anything about the case 
has looked into it, I think we all conclude the same thing, and that is that Grace was the murderer. Okay, Lloydie, thank you very much. And if anybody wants to read up on this? Well, obviously, there's my book, uh, Murder Tales Unsolved, or there is, as I said, the, the seminal work on the case, which is called The Riddle of Birdhurst Rise, and that is by Richard Whittington Egan. Uh, yeah, you can pick up second-hand copies of, of that particular book extremely cheaply. Mine's available on Amazon in all formats, and it's completely free to read if you have uh, Kindle Unlimited. Right, so, right. I think we've only just scratched the surface on poisonings. We have indeed. There are lots of really interesting uh, cases involving poisonings. Uh, I think we could, in fact dedicate an entire episode or two to the subject well why don't we do that in the next episode then sounds like a plan excellent okay so if you have any questions concerns or any feedback you can get in contact with us by going to x on at murder pod or you can get in contact with Lloydie directly on x by going to at hn lloyd one so that just leaves me to say i've been chris Britton, and he's been hn lloyd don't have nightmares. You can't do that anymore. Why can't I do you, that anymore? You did it for Halloween. That's fine. You you were allowed to do it for Halloween. That was it. So we've got to go back to saying, evening all. Yeah, don't plagiarise it. Wait, even, in, even in all's plagiarised, that's nicked from Dixon or Doc Green, just because no bugger remembers it anymore. Well, it, two wrongs don't make a right. <laughs> Finish off properly, please. Even in all. There we go. Goodbye. If you enjoyed the show, please go onto iTunes and leave us a lovely five-star review. And even better, click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Murder Tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by H.N. Lloyd. If you'd like to get your hands onto them, you can click on the Amazon link on our Twitter page. This show was presented, edited, and produced by Chris Britton. It was created, written, and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Mother Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod Casting Network. You can check out our other shows, such as the Pub Politics podcast, or even the Tragical History Tour. All you have to do is go and search on your favourite podcast provider.